Hi everybody, I'm Robin Willis, and welcome to Expat Stories, where we present tales about living life in Expatria, a place that is often far away from our homes, but perhaps closer to our hearts. This episode's storyteller is Hannah Piven, and was recorded on December 20th in 2012 at Bar S.A.F.A. in Barcelona, Spain. So I've been an expat from since I was born, pretty much. I mean, I was born in South America, in Uruguay. Then I moved to Israel when I was 11. In my 20s, I moved to New York. And then I moved back to Israel. And then I came here. And then I went back to Israel. And now I'm sort of between here and, and Israel. And I think that um, that once we are... Once we become expats, we kind of leave this main road in which we are protected by the mainstream, by some tradition in which we are rooted. And, um, and once we leave, we are really, we have the opportunity to really find and create our own way and sort of pick up a little bit from here and a little bit from there. And a lot of the things that we meet are real coincidences that we might not meet if we were to continue in our own countries. And um, so it gives an opportunity really to, to, to make some sort of collage of our own lives. Um, so in, in a way, the expats are the, the ones that have the opportunity to really to pick up a little bit from here, a little bit from there. And, and really create a unique life for themselves. And, um, and this has, is a double-edged sword because on one end, there is a lot of freedom to really do whatever you want because you're, you're different to start with. And um, so you're, you're really released from all this uh, society pressure because to start with, you're, you're the weirdo, you're the different one. And um, so there is a lot of freedom, and but it's the other side is that it's very, it's dangerous. You don't have support system. You don't have um, the comfort that being in the mainstream, in some road that everybody traveled before you gives you. So, um, and I think that once you leave that main road, once you become an expat, even if it's just in your own mind, it's very difficult to go back. And, uh, and sometimes it happens uh, just there is a trigger that makes that happen. And, um, and then something is opened for you. So, um, so in my case, it all started because of a coincidence. I was... Um, I was living in Jerusalem after I grew up in Israel after since the age of 11 and I was living a very normal life went to the army finished the army and I went to study mathematics and computers in Jerusalem for whatever reason because I wanted to do what I was supposed to do and um, and I really wasn't enjoying myself too much in my studies but I was just going along and um and suddenly I had a girlfriend in Jerusalem towards the end of the year, of the first year of studies. 
and I was really excited because I really didn't have many girlfriends before that. And, uh, and then towards the end of the year, we went to a party in, in the house of a friend of, of ours from the class. And somehow after the party, she ended up staying with him. So, <laughs> so I, it was a big, and you know, and, and this was after I told everybody I have a girlfriend now, I have a girlfriend now. And then suddenly the girlfriend was with another guy in the class. And, and it was really embarrassing because like we were all studying in the same class and then I would arrive by myself and five minutes later they would arrive together. And this is after I told everybody in the class, I have a girlfriend, I have a girlfriend. So um, I was so humiliated. I was really hurt and humiliated and I really needed to get the hell out of, uh, out of there. And um, so basically, I finished, it was a, a month before the end of the year and the school year. And as the year ended, I just got a plane, a, a plane ticket and I went to New York. Now, in retrospect, this woman is probably one of the biggest influence in my, influences in my life. That act of, you know, sleeping with me for a week and then not sleeping with me anymore uh, was really a, an amazing uh, force in the way my life uh, ended up being because I think you know university in Israel is three years this was almost the first the end of the first year if we were to stay together you know I was getting laid I was happy I you know I had a girlfriend I probably would have stayed in in, New, in, in Jerusalem I would have started the second year and, I, you know, after I finished two years of college, out of three, I would probably finish my degree and life would have happened in a different way. But just because of that uh, bitch, uh, sorry, just because of that, uh, that uh, woman who I, I, throughout the years, I kind of forgot her name. I almost really don't remember what she looks like, you know. I haven't seen her in 27 years or something like that. So... I ended up uh, in New York and I just wanted to leave all that. I was really, really embarrassed and humiliated. And I arrived in New York and, and then, of course, this kind of connected with all the things that I wanted to do. I, I really want to study computers and math. I wanted to study um, cartooning. Um, and then suddenly I found myself in New York and and I started to take classes in, um, in Parsons, evening classes, and I needed to make a living. So some friends, <clears throat> some friends had a moving company. So I started to work as a mover. And uh, three times a week I moved furniture and the other two days a week I, I took cartooning classes in, in Parsons. And, um, you know, life was just the first month or two in New York. It was, everything was very exciting. And then I got a phone call. And it's this guy that studied with us, with me and my friends, a year before in, in Israel. And he was an older guy. He kind of like made it already. He was 26 and... And, you know, he came back from New York after living in New York and fishing in Alaska. And he was kicked out of the United States. And he had all this street cred. And, um, and he said, I've got a great idea for us to make money. 
I have these two friends and they have this model of a duck puppet and they've been selling it in Japan and making a lot of money. They've been making like $5,000 a month and the Japanese loved their duck. And I said, sure, you know, come over. So the next week he comes, uh, he flies to New York and he comes to my apartment in Washington Heights and uh, he's got a backpack and he was a big guy with a beard and... Um, and then, you know, he takes his shoe off and he's got the plan there. And he opens it and puts it on the wall and it's a diagram of the duck puppet. You know, he says, we're going to make this duck puppet and we're going to make a lot of money. The Japanese love it. So, um, so we spent the, the 10 days, you know, buying wood and felt <laughs> and ropes. And I was already kind of an artist. So I had like creative differences with him. I was telling him, you know... It doesn't look that funny, and, and he was rigid. He didn't want to change anything in the model of the duck because the Japanese loved it, and, uh, and those guys made a lot of money with it. So, um, so we worked for like 10 days, and um, we printed labels, and, uh, and after 10 days, we had uh, 50 exemplars of, uh, of the, the, the puppet, and... Um, and we got dressed. It was 1987. It was uh, New York of the 80s. Ed Koch as mayor. Donald Trump was the king of the city. And lots of homeless. Uh, it was right a month or two after the stock market crash of 1987. It was the beginning of, of the holiday season, December 10th. So we split. He got a bag with uh, 25 ducks, and I got a bag with 25 ducks, and we went out to the street. And I first went down to, to Union Square, and we also had a big argument about the price. I said, you know, this duck, how much are we going to, you know, $5 or something? No, $20 for a duck, you know? It's really, the Japanese pay $20, and, you know, and we, we're going it's, to, it's a... It's a high price product. Um, so I was, uh, I opened up shop in Union Square. I put a blanket on the floor and I put the ducks on the floor. And, you know, an hour, and I had one duck and I was walking with the duck here and, and there. And um, so after an hour, nobody even approached me or came to buy the duck. So I thought, it was probably too much of a downtown crowd and I needed to go to a more sophisticated area. Uh, so I went to Rockefeller Center and, um, and I, I put the blanket down in um, just near the, the ice skating ring up in Rockefeller Center. And again, 20 minutes, half an hour goes by, nobody comes to buy a duck from me. A couple of people looked, but when they heard $20, they ran away. Obviously, they didn't have as much money as the Japanese, I guess. So um, after half an hour, this guy with a, with a university sweatshirt and hood, white guy, kind of Upper East Side-ish, handsome, comes and says, um, how much are the ducks? And I said, $20. He said, great, I'll take one. So um, I give him the duck. He gives me the $20. And then he says, police, you're arrested. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
they, you know, give me your hand, they put handcuffs on me, they fold the blanket, and uh, immediately a car pulls in, like this, and they open the door, and they put me inside the, the car. And, um, and they said, you know, sorry, you know, we're kind of, we, we really deal with drug dealers usually, but um, Donald Trump asks asked Koch to clean the streets of the illegal vendors before Christmas. So we are cleaning the whole of Fifth Avenue, and then somebody told us there was a weird guy selling ducks in Rockefeller Center, so, so we came to get you. Sorry. But um, uh, so they took me to this, uh, to the precinct station in the 30s or something. And uh, as I arrive, I see my friend there, the tall guy with the beard. <laughs> so, um, and he's like totally ashamed of himself. He was kind of the big brother, you know, he, he felt responsible and everything. And so they, they let us make a phone call. And I called my friend whom I was staying with. And I said, don't worry, we'll be soon there and, and everything. And we probably lose the ducks. But other than that, uh, so... We asked the guys in the station, um, okay, how long this is going to be? They said, oh, you need to go see a judge. We cannot release you. Once we arrest you, only a judge can release you. I said, okay, when are we going to see the judge? Oh, it's totally backed up. The nor usually it's 72 hours until you see the, the judge. So um, before we knew it, we were taken to Central Booking in, Bru in Brooklyn. And... Um, and there, um, and then we met. We were in the Central Booking, which is a really tough place because there, they were like uh, drug dealers and female prostitutes, uh, um, you know, transsexual prostitutes, and um, and some pimps from Harlem, which were a lot of fun. And they kept saying, they kept telling stories about pimping in Harlem. And they said, oh, Aretha Franklin, she was a big whore, you know, everybody slept with her, you know, let us tell you about Aretha Franklin. They were telling all these, all these stories. And then suddenly we see this uh, guy, white guy with a thick, sort of like a David Bowie-ish David Bowie looking type with a, with a suit, cross suit like the 80s, very white, you know, blonde hair. And it turned out that um, he parked his Porsche and uh, a policeman tried to give him a ticket and he, he tried to give money to the policeman, so the policeman arrested him. So he was there also with us. And, um, and then they, um, we did the fingerprinting and the photographs and everything. And then they, they started, they called our names in groups of 12 and they, they drove us again to different precinct stations where we were supposed to spend the next day or two until we, our time came to go see the judge. So um, we were spl split again. I was split again from my friend. And I, was, um, I, I had a, a cellmate, this guy who was uh, 17, and he was selling sweaters in, um, on Fifth Avenue near Trump Tower, and of course, he was one of the first ones that were arrested. 
So, um, and he was complaining all the time. He, like he had a tummy ache, a, a tummy ache and you know, he didn't like the food. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, um, now what was the food? The policeman came and they said, okay, we're going to McDonald's, make your orders. So basically we ate McDonald's for two days. So the, the guy immediately said, but I don't like McDonald's, I like Burger King. And um, so the policeman told him, oh, sir, I got news for you, you're in jail. <laughs> so, um, so we got Oreo cookies um, and we made a domino out of, I made, you know, in one of my first creative uh, acts, I made a domino out of the Oreo cookies box and we cut it and we made the little hole. So we played domino for a day and a half with the, with a guy, with a 17 year old guy. And then um, after uh, a day and a half that we were in, in the cell, um, again, we were, <clears throat> we were taken to uh, Court Street in downtown Manhattan to the cellars of the court building that there are all these cells there where the people wait to be brought up to go to court. So we, we spent another like six or seven or eight hours there. And there we all met the people from Brooklyn, from the central booking. We all met again. So I met my friend and the, the, the white guy with the Porsche. Suddenly he was all his clothes were all dirty and he wasn't white, that white anymore. The, the, shirt, the shirt wasn't white anymore. And the pimps from Harlem. And it was kind of a reunion of, of everyone. And um, so then they called us um, to come up. And the first thing they brought us, they brought me to meet the, the lawyer that works for the city and she was gonna represent me, Deborah Cohen. And um, that's a Jewish connection to your story. <laughs> so she said, you know, well, you're gonna have, um, you have two choices. You can um, plead guilty, accept that you were selling ducks. And, um, and then, you know, you probably will get a misdemeanor in your record. Or you can say you're not guilty, you plead, plead not guilty, and then you will have to come back and go to court and, you know. So I said, you know, I just want to go home. I, you know, I, I'll plead guilty, whatever, you know. Um, so I went out to the court and, and I said, yes, sir, I'm guilty of, uh, you know, I pled guilty. And, and indeed I got um, a record. I got a misdemeanor. Um, and, um, and my friend, he was just after me and he said, um, you know, he pleaded not guilty. So the judge just told him, oh, get away from here. Just leave, you know? So we ended up, you know, I ended up with a record and he didn't. <laughs> and years later, as I was to get my green card and, uh, this was a pain because Every time they ask you, you know, do you have a record? Do you have a record? So, of course, I would always bring it up because I didn't know if it was going to come up or not. Eventually, it turned out that it was sealed and I got my green card and, and then I stopped having a green card. But that's another story. And um, so, um, 20, a nice closure to the story, at least in my eyes, is that 20 years later, um, maybe four or five years ago, I, um, I, was, I had a couple of books published, so I was visiting my publishers in Simon & Schuster. And um, Simon & Schuster is in Rockefeller Center. So, um, 
so they said, let's take you out to lunch. So we went to this fancy restaurant that is right <laughs> across the street from where I was arrested. So uh, it was a nice closure, you know, and a nice uh, conversation to tell them the story. So I pretty much told them the same story, including Aretha Franklin and, 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 and everything. So, um, so yeah, so this is my New York duck puppet story. <laughs> That was Hannah Piven, who is an illustrator and an author, whose work has appeared in Time, Newsweek, and Rolling Stone. He currently splits his time between Barcelona and Tel Aviv. For more information and stories, go to expatstories.org. That's expat with an X. Music by Three Lake Torso. And thanks for listening.